This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Utility Inc., the innovative technology-enabled service provider recognized for creating groundbreaking digital systems for frontline professions in effectively collecting, analyzing, and managing digital media evidence. Welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, we often think of being on an island here with policing in America, except for the influence of Sir Robert Peel from the United Kingdom and his Peelian principles in 1822. We do not seem to compare with other police agencies from other countries. Well, that's what I thought before I went to the FBI National Academy and then I met with international police officers, I found out what they do. And in fact, many of them share the same common issues with our brothers and sisters here in America and across many other countries. Today's guest is Dr. Laura Huey, a Canadian criminologist specializing in the study of public policing, victimization, missing persons, and mental health issues in criminal justice. Dr. Huey is a professor at the University of Western Ontario in the Department of Sociology. She is also editor-in-chief of the International Journal Police Practice and Research, chair of the Working Group on Mental Health and Policing of the COVID-19 Task Force of the Royal Society of Canada, former vice chair of the American Society of Criminologists, Division of Policing, and the former executive director of the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Yeah, and many, many more. She's written some great articles and books. Hey, welcome to Policing Matters, Dr. Laura Huey. Thank you. And thank you for making me sound so grand. <laughs> you are grand. I've, I've been following you for a while, and I've read some of your stuff. And, you know, like I say in the intro, it's not so different after all in Canada than it is, you know, down here in the lower 48. Um, so many issues and challenges hit us in America over the past five years. Um, what do you see as the biggest hit in Canada over the same time period? So this is a dirty little secret of Canadians. And, and it's not much of a secret. I think most Americans know this about us. When asked to define what is Canadian, our number one answer is we're not Americans. And the reason why we do that is because we have, let's be honest, we don't have much of an identity culturally, right? We've got like a beaver, a hockey stick, and we're known as being polite. I'm not sure what that means. But anyway, this is what people, you know, that's what Canada is. So we always go, oh, we're not Americans, which is really funny to me and very hypocritical because we get so much of our media content from you guys. So we'll say we're not American. And then we will act like everything that happens in the United States is also happening in Canada at the same time. 2020, we don't even need to go back five years. Let's go back two years to the, the apocalypse that was known as 2020. Everything that you guys experienced, we experienced here in real time as though it was literally happening here in Canada. So with George Floyd and the protests, we were experiencing that here. When it came to calls for defunding and abolition, we were experiencing that here. Uh, when it came to COVID and the enforcement issues around public health, we had that here. 
And so all the same crises that you were having in public policing two years ago were pretty much identically felt here. And so much for that, we're not Americans, because again, <laughs> we act like, like we're like, never mind the lower 48, like one giant contiguous, you know, it's the 49 and then two extras. <laughs> nice. Oh, so you predict the colonization of Canada soon? <laughs> well, you kind of have already colonized us through your media. Because one of the, I spend a good chunk of my time in criminology trying to debunk CSI, which we do not have in Canada like you guys have. So there's all these misconceptions that students um, and the general public have. Like if you ask people in Canada, what is a felony or misdemeanor? They can tell you, but we don't actually have either one of them in Canada. <laughs> but most people don't know that. So again, we are so highly impacted by what you guys put out in movies, TV, books, and so on. It's like, there's no difference. So in, so oftentimes we'll see uh, something, an issue or a policy that takes hold either in California or New York, and then it tends to move east or west, depending on where it started. What about Canada? Are you seeing ripple effects of things that happen here that move north? Um, I want to get a perspective to our for our law enforcement listeners. Uh, what can we expect? What's is there anything happening in the north that we expect to come south anytime soon? No. However, what's interesting to me that came out of the whole defund thing was. We also had a very similar set of responses. Um, there were there were multiple cities like, OK, we always joke in the States about California, right? The kooky left coast, which is really funny because it's also like it's that's like such a generalization. But we also have our own left left coast. And so there were certain places where um, we we were very likely to see big calls for defund and big protests and so on. So I watched those cities over the two years to see what do the police um, service boards do and what do the city councils do. And what they did is pretty much pretty similar to what happened in the States with a few, a few exceptions. Um, the, those cities were Vancouver, Calgary, uh, I was interested in Toronto and Ottawa. And so what ended up happening is we had protests in all those places. We had big defund. There were like multiple tons of people showing up at the police services board calling for um, cuts to funding and uh none of those cuts took place <laughs> none of them in fact the reason why none of those cuts took place is it is an unknown fact that we were um actually the police per population ratio in canada has been tended to be on the lower side and so we had already been kind of being systematically defunding for quite some time because we had not been replacing police officers. We had not been, uh, we'd been quietly moving programs and killing different initiatives and so on. And we've been shifting the funding model. And that from what I gather is exactly pretty much what was happening in the States in, in some of your hotbed cities as well. Yeah, I read your chapter uh, one year later where you talk about some of the things where 
I guess some of the defund advocates were seem to be getting a foothold to some extent, but then it quickly reversed. Maybe probably quicker than it did here in America. I'm wondering about these other issues um, in, you know, the knee-jerk reactions by legislators who wanted to defund and take away uh, use of force options like electric controlled weapons, like, you know, we call them tasers, or the carotid restraint, which a lot of people call a chokehold, which, of course, it's not, uh, all the way down to uh, no-knock warrants. Um, you know, we've seen a case or two. I In class, I call them moral panics, right? It's one time, and we've probably done something similar thousands of times, but the one time comes to the media attention, and, you know, tomorrow's headline is we're not doing it anymore. Yeah. And we've had, you know, we had something similar uh, in the past uh, recently in San Francisco. And you talk about the the hub of the left coast. I'm in it. And uh, amazingly to me, our board of supervisors in San Francisco authorized police to use uh, bomb robots. And we've always had bomb robots, of course, right? But now the new twist was that they were going to be able to deliver an explosive charge on a suspect in certain situations. And they approved it. And I was like flabbergasted and actually did a, a debate with uh, Joel Schultz, uh, a, a Denver uh, chief, Denver area chief. And we had a great time uh, with the debate. But then, of course, a few days later, uh, after the ridicule in the media, the supervisors reversed course and said, yeah, well, maybe not so much. No more killer robots. Uh, did any of those things take hold in Canada? No knock, carotid, taser, um, stopping vehicles now? That's that issue? What well, happened up there? Well, we, we have, in some cases, um, it's funny, the, the chokehold carotid issue what is, it's, again, a classic example of Canadians not actually understanding what's going on in their own country. So I'm uh, uh, when that happened, there was a lot of like, oh, my God, we got to rush and do something up here. But the reality is we had gotten rid of those in the but like 80s and 90s. We had stopped using them. The RCMP was actually the first police service in Canada to say we're not doing this anymore because of liability issues and other police services start to follow. So when I cut my teeth doing policing research in Vancouver's downtown east side, which is very akin to San Francisco's tenderloin, um, police, and this would have been late 90s, early 2000s, police were not using chokeholds or carotid um, restraint. Uh, and that was pretty standard. And in fact, it was kind of problematic because what was happening is they'd be stopping drug, they'd be stopping drug dealers who'd swallow. And now your problem is you used to be able to put a chokehold to try to stop them from swallowing their, their, their drugs. Um, I was going to say their merchandise. Um, and so now the guy swallowing it, there's not much you can do except take him to the hospital and get a stomach pumped. Right. So it was one of those funny trade-offs, right. As there often are. So we had already gotten rid of, that to a certain extent. The CEWs were a problem, became a huge political issue in Canada after the George Dijansky case in, at Vancouver's airport, which was a guy who was ha had a, uh, obviously had a uh, significant emotional distress slash mental health episode, 
didn't speak a word of English and they couldn't find, they didn't even know what language he was speaking. And two police officers tasered him multiple times and he ended up dying and that there was a huge uproar about that. And uh, coroner's inquest, we had a national uh, research review done on it. And at the end of the day, Canada did what Canada often does, research the crap out of something. And then we did change nothing. <laughs> it's like, sound vaguely familiar? Is this just, this is uniquely Canadian or what? <laughs> so that was that. Was, um, that. The no-knock warrants became an issue in Ottawa uh, a couple of years ago because of uh, some similar circumstances, a raid that had gone awry. I think they went to the wrong address on that one. Um, but it's not, not much has changed out of that. But what we do not have killer robots, <laughs> or at least we're not using them that way. I laughed when I saw that. And I thought, I know exactly. You're right. Moral panic. It's a reaction to a, a singular event that went wrong. So now we're going to prevent this by going to, to the total extreme and doing something completely different rather than thinking like, one of the one of the problems we have in relation to policing and policing research is we typically treat these incidents as like ginormous fires that have to be we have to run around like maniacs and put the fire out right after the after the fact what we don't do is what they do in the aeronautics industry when there's a plane crash which is a forensic sort of investigation aimed at figuring out what went wrong rather than who should we blame and who's getting fired. This is the singular biggest problem in public policing as far as I'm concerned. And it's not, it happens internally, but it happens and it also happens externally. We don't care about fixing the problem. We care about having somebody's head on a plate, mm. which all that does, as we saw after 2020, is create situations in which I'm sure you're familiar with the term FIDO, correct? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to spell that one out. We also, the polite term for that is e-policing. We- Right, well, let's let's tell the audience. It's it's a F, it, drive on, right? Uh -huh. So you're gonna use your imagination, but it's, it's, it's the idea that officers are looking at something going, oh, that cannot go well, and they just keep driving. Okay. Jim told me not to use any acronyms, but he also didn't want me to swear. So I was kind of stuck on that one. <laughs> but yes, it is de-policing. Like if you, if you're not, if the risk reward ratio for the individual officer is not sufficiently tilted towards the reward for like a good arrest, why would he or she want to do it, right? And we've basically what we've done is with all these panics, we've created moral hazard for police officers. And the moral hazard is you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So you should do nothing, which is not it, it's having huge ripple effects. And we're starting to see that with the rise of certain types of violent offenses in the U.S. and to a certain extent, Canada as well. Yeah, I mean, you bring up really good points and that, that frustration um, the morale issues, uh, the fact that, you know, cops that are working are saying they would not recommend policing to others it really all contribute to not only the recruitment crisis, but uh, I don't know if you're seeing it up north, but 
Customs and Border Patrol, CBP, uh, they are experiencing some really uh, tremendous issues uh, that weigh down on their officers, their agents that are trying to patrol the southern border. Um, and I mean, they are in just Fido doesn't even fix it. They can't. I mean, we're taking CBP agents from Canada and sending them down to Mexico to help those officers. And uh, I mean, unfortunately, uh, we've had 14 suicides by CBP officers in this year already. I think three last week. And um, Congress is finally looking at funding some mental health issues, which is, you know, a Band-Aid on a shotgun wound where they really need to look at all of the issues affecting officers, you know, leadership from the top, the morale issues, uh, double shifts, sleeping, anxiety, the media portrayals, all of that. 100%. We have the same issue. So a few years back, there was a study done on the RCMP in Saskatchewan in which they didn't diagnose people, but they looked at different symptoms associated with PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And what they found was that 25% of the, that population of police officers were showing signs of some type of a mental health issue. And other subsequent studies have found variations, but those variations tend to be higher than 25%. And it's a big deal. There's, and it's multifaceted. And as with other institutions, it's oftentimes reactive, the responses. So one of the big problems is um, I find over and over in terms of morale is tenure policies. And so what happens is you get certain police officers that get into a role that they really like. And for a variety of reasons, there's a tenure policy that's put in place. And when they get moved, it creates uh, a disruption, not only of their career and their aspirations and what they like to do, but also their family life. I did a research project here in um, we, you guys call it CSI, we call it forensic identification or IDENT. So I did a, started a study with IDENT officers who are a unique breed in policing. And here in Canada, they're uniformed police officers. So those police officers self-select to go into that unit because they, that's what they really wanna do. And most of them wanna stay there and would like to stay there for their entire career. But because we're so reactive and we don't really understand things, what happens is we assume that they're having mental health effects and that they need to be transferred out after three to five years. I've had police officers literally crying on me because that transfer process is so, um, so problematic for them. If you're a single mother, for example, and you're working a nine to five in IDENT and you get told you're going back to the streets to work shift work, that's trauma, that, that in and itself can cause trauma. Hmm. Um, and I don't mean that lightly either. If you've got underlying mental health effects, the internal pressures within the organization can make it a thousand times worse. So we, it's this complex problem that we have very little understanding, but we have this one size fits all sort of set of solutions. One thing that Canada is doing differently and it's because believe it or not, strangely, academics actually lobbied for this. They lobbied for increased funding on understanding policing, first responders, mental health issues. So police, fire, uh, corrections, um, border, uh, sea patrol, you name it. We need to better understand 
how these things are occurring and what is the best way to start to like help people deal with them so that we're not stigmatizing them. And also we're actually providing services that are useful rather than, I'm sorry, like not everybody wants to go to a shrink and be like, mom, it's just not for everybody. That person might need a dog. And I'm yeah. saying that that's what I did. I got dogs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's not quite an easy fix. And I mean, I think sometimes we miss those people who don't really want to go before uh, a therapist or a psychologist. And Marie Ridgway uh, works in Minnesota and in the Minneapolis area. She's a therapist in public safety. And I think she has a great idea in annual check-ins and just a cursory, how's it going? How's it, how's your sleep? How's your nutrition? How's your alcohol intake? And boom, say more if you want. Don't, you know, come back if you want. But, you know, in San Francisco, San Francisco PD, they didn't allow, they didn't, our policy did not allow outreach. We always had to wait till people came to us. And I think uh, that's so reactive and not productive and it's not prevention. So, I mean, I, I don't know what you think about that or if you've got some good programs in Canada, but here I think, you know, we're still lacking uh, in general in, in our outreach and prevention. Um, just like the border patrol situation, the legislators are acting now 14 suicides later and I don't know that they're going to get to the root problems, but I mean, I'd love to see more and more prevention programs. 100%. What most people don't really realize is that these, um, we call them operational stress injuries. These OSIs are, they're systemic. They're built into the role of public police. And people don't understand, like I might in my lifetime encounter, you know, maybe less than 10 dead people. And usually it's in the context of a funeral. Well, I, I my partner's a police officer and I can tell you, he's seen way more than 10 just out on patrol. That's part of the regular patrol duties is dealing with all sorts of deaths. And as part of that, it's funny, we talk about the defund thing. Here's something I'd like to have defunded. Why are police officers doing the, um, the, 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 I forget the term, the calls to the family, like go and doing the family oh, notifications. Uh, thank you. Family notification. Why? Where's the damn social workers? <laughs> and like if there was ever a job for a social worker, you think that was it. If the person clearly died in a traffic accident, why do we need to send a uniformed police officer to do this? Because that in and of itself is not just stressful, but potentially traumatizing for that police officer. Can somebody explain to me why we're not looking at, at issues like that? So um, one of the things in terms of the prevention, I mean, we I, okay, so one thing we could do is we could start to look at what it is that we actually ask police officers to do, which is something I'm a huge proponent of. Then start to look at where which agencies are, be are better suited for that. And I, there's not one single cop on this planet that will tell you that they actually want to do family notification, that they want to do like um, all sorts of like, here's another personal favorite. Why are you guys tasked with going and finding the people that escape from the mental institution? <laughs> Like, seriously, 
why, why? You want to defund, let's defund that. Let's get the damn hospital to go find their people that they let go in the first place, right? So we, like, there's all sorts of, and, and the thing is, you know, we're talking about operational stress injuries, but the impact of frustration, I've done research on this and police officers report a significant degree of frustration of having to go chase this person back, find them, take them back to the hospital, wait 12 hours for the intake, right? <laughs> they might like the overtime, but that's about it. And it's ridiculous. Like what are some of the frustrating aspects of policing that we could be looking at and reducing? The other thing we need to do, and one of the things I've been, um, I've been cautioning police leaders about this. Why are police leaders so terrible with community, um, with, with media relations? When there's a crisis, why is it that oftentimes it's a couple of days have gone past before anybody says anything and there's not a detailed, blunt explanation? And the reason why that's important is again, it creates external pressures on agencies that create stress and trauma for the officers that are working, for example, a case that are being crapped on in the, pu in the public eye day after day and, and, and trying to deal with the stressful event at the same time. So I I've been saying, you know, you guys need to do a better job of getting ahead of these issues. Um, I'll give you an example. This one is just, this one's just unbelievable. We have a case right now, you're talking about killer robots and stuff. Okay, so when I was in San Francisco back in 2000, activists in, um, that were anti-SFPD were saying, why did the police there not use beanbag guns? Why do you not use nets? And so we've had our first fatality that involved a beanbag gun. <laughs> Jim's we had one in, we actually had one in Boston too. Okay. Okay. So the reality is we're still waiting for the coroner's reports and stuff to come out. Pretty sure that the beanbag is not actually the mechanism of death. Pretty sure that this is going to turn out to be something else like perhaps fentanyl. I'm just, this is just pure speculation, but um, my, that's what my crystal ball is saying right now. But now we're having a big public uproar about um, beanbag deaths, we have to, we have to deal with these. And one in how many million encounters, right? Right. And this is what, this is what the community activists asked for. They asked for the beanbags. Now the police officer that deployed the beanbag is publicly vilified. Of course. After they've already dealt with a traumatic event in which somebody died. This is why I'm saying I want to see police leaders step out and be ahead of the curve on these things to and to recognize that, yes, community engagement is important, but officer morale within your organization is equally important too. a good, strong police service provides good, strong service to the community. And that's a piece that we don't often really drive home. Totally agree with you on that. And I want to I want to ask you some more about leadership in a minute, but First, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Utility provides a universe of intuitive solutions for effectively capturing, analyzing, managing, and sharing video evidence. Technologies include a variety of cameras, sensors, devices, as well as situational awareness software solutions for law enforcement, first responders, transportation agencies, and utility providers. To learn more about utility and its technology solutions, 
visit utility.com. That's U-T-I-L-I-T-Y.com. And we're back speaking with Dr. Laura Huey, professor at University of Western Ontario, researcher in police practices. And we're talking a little bit about leadership now that I'd like to continue talking about. Um, I, I think you bring up great points. I've said it for, I don't know, years that when we talk about leadership, the people who work under chiefs and command people are dying for leadership. They, they want exactly what you just said. They want leadership to address the media, not now, but right now. And they don't want that runaway narrative to take hold to where you have people in sports of all kinds of sports, media, Time, Newsweek, everybody on the cover doing the same, you know, uh, mimicking event that never happened. And, you know, we fall into that trap all the time. We fall into it because we're afraid of lawsuits or something that might come back in a criminal case later. But I'll tell you this, I've seen officers act appropriately within policy and still we're paying out millions of dollars. So what's the hazard in law enforcement leaders jumping up at that podium, first gathering as much accurate information. I've seen it go sideways when a chief shows up on the scene, ask somebody out on a perimeter a half mile away what happened. They get the they get what that guy heard from that from another guy from another guy and they put out the wrong information. So I know they're fearful of that. What's the answer? What's what's the what's that you know happy medium where chiefs and sheriffs can go out there and and tell the public what really happened as opposed to staying silent and then you know five days later maybe coming out with a blurb that nobody wants to hear or nobody's listening to <laughs> well I'll give you a great example I don't know if you heard this but okay so we had a series of big we had a giant protest it was called like an occupation in Ottawa in uh, February and um, it was it was quite something. It was like a complete bleep show. <laughs> I'm trying not to swear, <laughs> but it was it was it was just mismanaged from start to finish. But one of the things is I'm watching this whole thing unfold on Twitter. You probably heard the story as well. I think everybody heard the story that the RCMP had a, a horse that killed a little old lady who happened to be an indigenous protester this was the story so my twitter feed blows up with people in like berlin uh houston uh you know venezuela wherever about oh my god these killer cops and their killer horse it actually showed up on the date in the uk daily mail this story with a picture of this so-called killer horse killing this little old indigenous lady there was a small problem with that. She didn't die. She wasn't seriously injured. And she wasn't a little old lady. And I don't actually know that she was indigenous. So in fact, I, I'm, doing, I'm actually doing an oral history of what happened from the police perspective, talking to officers who were actually there. And one of the people that I interviewed was, um, I won't give too many details because I don't want to like identify this person, but Let's just say that they had a very good, clear shot on what happened and saw the entire incident. So the background of this story is that the police officers on the ground 
I have been warning the protesters for hours. You need to go, we need to clear the space. Then what happened is they, the protesters didn't go. The police horse and officer executed a very standard maneuver, which is like basically a nudging. And the part that wasn't reported was that somebody had actually tried to hit the horse. Mm. And so this person basically, as we've seen in other protests, fell over. And this became this big thing about, you know, how she was killed. But the reality, she was back at the protest the next day. So she clearly wasn't dead unless it was a resurrection situation, which is beyond my scientific capacity to understand. And then subsequently, I heard she went to Florida after that because it's Florida. I don't know. But anyway, this story was huge. And nobody, not only has nobody ever really corrected it, um, but it just sort of like it was it's just today, if I Google, I will still, still see people talking about this as though it was a legit fact. Mm. So what should police officers or police leaders do? Well, you're going to laugh, but I kind of like Ed Flynn, like, <laughs> who is pretty, pretty out there. Right. He's pretty. He'll just tell you what he thinks. Right. Um, and what I think we need to do is we need to have more police leaders who are willing to take the political flack that might necessarily come from speaking up. Here's the thing. Police chiefs, as you know, have a tenure in, a, in an organization of typically anywhere from two to seven years is the longest contract we've, I've heard of in Canada, right? With renewals and so on. So if you know that you're gone in five years and even if they don't like you, they're still going to pay you out. Where's like, what's the incentive for keeping your mouth shut? Right? None. Exactly. One of the, um, one of the chiefs who I happen to adore here in Canada has, is taken a more Ed Flynn like approach. And this is the chief of the Vancouver police, Adam Palmer and his deputy chief, Howard Chow. And they, they are one of the few organizations that has said we are, everything is so political and the impacts on our police service are so um, significantly detrimental. We're going to start speaking up and they become very vocal about when they see misinformation, addressing it. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to police officers across Canada, some, somebody actually messaged me and said, can you name 10 police chiefs in Canada that you would be willing to work for? And I said, hell no. <laughs> because I'm fussy, right? I'm spoiled and fussy. But I can name three and Adam Palmer is the second one on that list. And that's the reason why. We wanna see people that prioritize their organization and that organization's well-being. Because if you have manky, frustrated, tired cops that are checked out, that's what you're going to get on the street. Mm, right. Yeah. I hear you. Hey, shifting a little bit um, and wrapping up, uh, considering your time, you wrote a couple of books with a friend of the show, a friend of mine, Dr. Renee Mitchell, on evidence-based policing. Uh, how's that being received in Canada? And are we walking the walk as well as talking the talk about evidence-based policing we are not everybody says they do it but it's only on the website <laughs> and so 
The other thing too, and this is a very common thing in policing, people will jump on the next greatest thing to get the bump, right? I'm going to be seen promoting this new great thing so I can get my promotion, lieutenant, captain, whatever, right? And we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of fake evidence-based policing where people say that they're doing it so they can jam their latest program and say, oh, it's evidence-informed or evidence-whatever. That's crap. And it's and to be honest, that my frustration with that is part of the reason why I stepped down from CANSAP. I'm just like, you know what? Five years of trying to talk people into doing the right thing. There's other more productive ways to do that. Renee is a nut bar. Love her nut bar because she is continuing to fight in the trenches on this. And she's and she's making she's making impact. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm happy to like let Renee lead the fight on that. And I will be lazy and princess like and take my cushy little academic stuff and be happy and so where can our read listeners find your book after that but here's the thing an academic can't push that it has to be police officers that promote it i've pushed this rock up the hill as far as i can take it you guys want to take it you can find all of this stuff on amazon it's, you know, you can always message me, you can email me, I will help you find, you know, uh, access to manuscripts, to, to papers and so on. I'm always happy to help out with police officers that want to be better informed about these things. Yeah, I would counter, I mean, I've been in agreement with you, like 99% on everything, but I would counter that I think there is a foothold uh, being taken. Jason Potts, I'm not sure what his role in the leadership at um, evidence American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Uh, he was a, a colleague of mine in a cohort at UC Irvine, super smart guy, great guy, uh, Vallejo PD here in uh, California. Now he's the director or the chief in Las Vegas, and he's doing really good work and putting paper to practice. Yeah. Uh, he's using a lot of the evidence-based researching to to further educate his officers in Las Vegas and to put them to work on the streets uh, there. So I think in you know pockets around the country, you are seeing the practice um, being done, and I'm encouraged by it. I think it's a great point to push back on the defunders yeah. when they you know, they want to talk about evidence and then you show them evidence and then they want to talk about compassion instead, <laughs> right? So like, play that me. game. I know. <laughs> so anyhow, hey, it's been great talking to you. Uh, like I said, I've been following you and and some of your research. Um, hope to talk to you again real soon. What, what are you doing these days? What can our listeners uh, do to find what you're writing and what you're talking about? I'm on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Laura Huey. Um, and it's all one word, or you can just Google me. And I, I'm constantly talking about the research I'm engaged in. Most of the stuff I'm engaged in right now has to do with the politics of policing. So I'm talking about how uh, my research now is looking at the ways that misinformation is going to have a huge impact on public policing. Mm. And it's going to destabilize public policing as we're seeing it destabilize other institutions like healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this is an important crisis that we can start to get ahead on, but we're not. But if you want to follow me there, that's a great way to find out what crazy stuff I'm up to. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for uh, taking time with us today. 
Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Great talking to you. Hey, to our listeners, uh, check out Dr. Laura Huey on Twitter. She's also got a blog and you can see some of her research there. Uh, your books on are on negotiating demands about policing skid rows, evidence-based policing, and implementing evidence-based research, policing mental health, and others. Hey, thanks for listening. Stay safe out there and hope to talk to you again real soon. I'm Jim Dudley. <laughs>